0: After reviewing the play, the call on the ice stands. We got a goal! Well, the colors, we are set to go. Let's go! We are kicking. Watch the blue! There we go. Yeah, baby! Hey! hey you, you, got you got the power play, get out of here! Hey! Already already right yeah. here for the rock. Both guys, five minutes each, for fighting! Hey! Hey! We're not doing this! I don't want to babysit all night! A little bit of nastiness today. Eh? Nothing oh. good's coming out of this, big man. Have you seen this before? Yes, it's ruled something point something. He's not putting a stick in here. You, you keep your stick out of him. Here we go. It's us boys. Hey, oh, hey, hey. Let's
1: go.
2: After further review, it's the Scouting the Refs podcast. Here's your hosts, Todd Lewis and Josh Smith.
1: When you ready, big guy.
2: All right, guys, let's drop the puck.
0: So playoffs, pretty quiet, pretty dull, not much happening, no drama, no controversy. Josh, I don't know how I got through that without giggling. I really don't.
1: <laughs> yeah, none of that. No, sure, sure, Todd. It's been uh, it's been quite a week. Lots of games and lots of noise out there too. It's amazing the intensity
0: that we see go up every year in the postseason. There's the days of anticipation before the playoffs start. You can't wait, can't wait, and then all of a sudden you're doing warp speed, uh, going from game to game, and it's just it's, it's fun to watch. It's fun to enjoy and. We've had our fair share of um, controversy, do I, do I put it that
1: way? I'd say so, sure.
0: Well, what we should do then is go to the source of great information, because I've really been enjoying him on the ESPN coverage of the NHL, and that, of course, his former NHL referee, Dave Jackson, who's been providing analysis, and good on you for hustling and booking the guests so I didn't have to do it, <laughs> it and getting them to come back again.
1: Dave, kicking things off of the playoffs, the biggest part or one of the biggest things that we look for at Scouting the Refs is seeing which officials are going to be selected to work the postseason. So always a big moment there. And just wondering if you can give a little insight of what goes into the process and and what it's like for you being on the receiving end of finding out and how exactly you find out that you're scheduled to work playoff games.
2: Oh, well, you know what? It's really evolved over the years. Um, it's funny. Back in the day. So I started with the NHL in 86. And I was on contract in 89, and my first NHL game was 90. But I was doing NHL games uh, starting uh, full-time in 93. And back then, there was no email. There was no texting. So it, it was it was kind of funny and or stressful, actually. What would happen is the season would usually end on a Sunday. And then if you were working playoffs, you got a call Monday morning from uh, the referee and chief's assistant. She would call you and tell you, you made the playoffs, and this is where your your first games are going to be. Now, if your phone didn't ring, you could assume you just weren't doing playoffs. <laughs> but the funny part was, like you know, you keep checking your phone line to make sure that you know maybe my phone's out of order. The phone hasn't rang yet, and uh, you know by Wednesday, you kind of figured it out that your phone hasn't rang, so <laughs> <laughs> so you're not working. Uh, which was uh, you know it was a stressful time since the advent of email. What usually happens is, well, I mean, obviously, your body of work throughout the season determines whether you're going to work playoffs. One bad call during the season or a couple of bad calls doesn't disqualify you. And, you know, one really good call doesn't mean you're guaranteed to work playoffs. It's um, your entire body of work. The supervisors evaluate you at least in half your games, they file reports with the director of officiating with Stephen Walkham. they have a midseason meeting with all the supervisors. They discuss each referee, they have an internal ranking. It's not made public. It's not even given to the referees. They don't tell them where they're ranked. But they do have an internal ranking. And that's very uh, important and very interesting because it's sealed. But in the event somebody were to get hurt, if you are injured before Christmas time, before midseason, then if it's a season-ending injury, whatever you did in the playoffs the prior year, you would receive 75% pay uh, because you couldn't work the playoffs, and it would be assumed that you would be back at least at the level you were the year before. If you were hurt after midseason, once they've done their midseason review where they have the ratings, they would then have to go to the envelope and see where you were rated. If you were rated top four, for example, then you'd be paid uh, a portion of working all the way to the finals. If you weren't having a good season and you were rated out of the playoffs, it wouldn't matter what you did the year before. You wouldn't receive any playoff compensation. So that rating is important, but it's internal. When the season comes to an end, they also have a playoff meeting with all the supervisors and everybody has input on every linesman, every referee. Then it's up to the director officiating to take all that info, filter it all, and he chooses his top 20 referees, top 20 linesmen. And a bunch of guys get left home and you receive an email. The next morning so everybody would have got an email on saturday morning and it just shows the team that's working there's a request to, you know please support the guys that are working and for the most part guys do like they're upset if they don't get assigned games but they need to be good teammates they need to support the guys that are working especially if they're friends with them give them a call congratulate them be happy for new guys that got in because after all it's no different than a hockey team i mean everybody wants to be in the starting lineup but some guys get scratched and they've got to be there for the team. So it's a, it's a very stressful time of year.
0: That's exactly the comparison I was going to make is you're uh, you're essentially supporting your teammates if you if you didn't make the cut this time. They the other thing that that I'm curious about especially in the first round when you have the, all these groups of officials you shuffle from series to series to series how do you keep up on what's happening in the other series? If you've worked one and then you move on to another one, how do you stay on top of what's happened in prior games? What kind of scouting and preparations take place? That's a great question. Um,
2: so you seldom see the same referees work two games in the same series, unless it's a game seven. The goal is to just have everybody, you know, in and out. One game hits and then move on because, you know, we know familiarity breeds contempt, right? Right. You don't want to be there for two games. You don't want to have to do six periods. You want to do three periods. Teams don't want to see you more than three periods. They want somebody new. They've got a beef, some legit, some perceived, but they have a beef with officiating. Move on, bring a new crew in, and it's incumbent upon the series supervisor. So every series is assigned a supervisor who's there for all seven games, if it goes that far. And his role is multifaceted. He's a mentor. He's a coach. He's an evaluator. Because you do have to evaluate the referees, give your opinion to the boss on which guys were working the best, because you've got to cut down from 20 to 14 in the, in the second round. But he's also a go-between with the teams, with the coaches, with the GMs. And every game, he will then, on a day off or the next game day, he'll, he'll meet with the coaches. He'll listen to their concerns. They want to be heard. And then he'll filter their concerns. He won't bring everything back to the referees. But he'll also tell the coaches, listen, for example, if there were too many scrums last night in, in a game, he will tell the coaches, listen, I, we thought there were too many scrums last night. We're going to tell the referees tonight to clean the scrums up. So be ready. And then what will happen is every day around lunchtime or sometimes pregame, well in advance of the game, there'll be a pregame meeting with the officials. And it doesn't matter if it's game two or game six, game seven, he'll go through every game that's happened any hot spots, any things to be looking out for, and then he'll tell you what he's told the coaches. And in, in an example I just gave, he'll say, guys, I told both coaches we're going to tighten up on the scrums. So the first chance you have, if there's a scrum, you want to warn them, and if they don't stop, you need to call a penalty because we told them that's what we're going to do. We need to be consistent with what the message was. And that's guys will go out and they'll do their job. That's sort of how it works, and it's all up to the series supervisor to keep the guys abreast on what's going on.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting, the role that they play and, and having that consistency. And I guess one of the other changes from the regular season to the postseason is a little more consistency from an officiating crew standpoint is that you typically get paired up with a set partner. So I, I took a look back, Dave, back in 2016, you and Kelly Sutherland worked the first round together, which I would say probably a, a nice crew there for most of those games. But what's it like working NHL games when you you know you're working with the same partner for, say, that first round of the playoffs?
2: Oh, it's great. Uh, It really is. I mean, I have no problem working with anybody. They're all professionals. They're all good. But when you get the ability, I mean, I think the year before, I went uh, I went right to game six in round three, and I did every game with Dan O'Rourke. I think we did 18 games maybe together. And it's great because if something goes wrong, if you miss some coverage somewhere, then you talk about it after the game and you say, "Hey, tomorrow night when we go back out and do this game, let's make sure we don't miss that coverage again." You're in sync with each other. So for example, if I'm on the goal line and there's a play at the net, a scramble, I'm telling my partner, "You got to know that when there's a scramble in front of the net, I am I am net focused." So anything that happens even right beside me, I need you to need you to help me. I don't I don't need you Helping me in front of the net, that's where I'm going to be looking. I need you to help me on the perimeter. Anything around me, even if it's five feet from me, I'm probably not going to see it because I'm net focused. And then the puck will go up to the blue line, and I'll know I don't have to watch the puck at the blue line. We've talked about it. My partner in the neutral zone, he has that. He has the guys at the point, he has the guy that's finishing his check on the guy taking a shot towards the net. I'm watching the front of the net. Or when it's in the corner, if I'm spinning around, I've got the corner. I know he has the front of the net for me. And that's all about communication. And it's just great synergy. And when you work 18 games together in one playoff year, by the end of it, you're kind of finishing each other's
0: sentences. You you, you really know each other that well. Developing chemistry, just like good line mates do on a, on a hockey team as well. Totally. Yeah. As we're into the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs now, each game has increased focus. Each game has increased attention from fans. And there's a lot of plays that have been focused on in the first few days And I suspect most notably was the hit in game one between the Leafs and the Tampa Bay Lightning that got Michael Bunting ejected for his high hit on Eric Chernak. Subsequently, a hearing with the Department of Player Safety and a three-game suspension has been imposed. Take us through the process of how the call was made, how the ruling on the ice was made in terms of making it a match penalty and ejecting uh, Michael Bunting. Sure. And
2: interestingly, uh, ESPN carried both those games and the process I felt worked perfect in both games. You go back to the Dumba hit. When I saw it initially at full speed, I kind of went, ooh, that looks kind of looks kind of greasy. looks like there's something there. And obviously you never want to see a player hurt and Pavelski's hurt. So the referees got together on the ice and discussed it. And I think they made a really good judgment call. I support the fact that on the ice, they called that a major penalty. Because in real speed, you know, Dumba elevates on the hit, the puck's gone, and we've got an injured player. So you want to err on the side of player safety, which is what they did. But then they reviewed it, and I watched a bunch of replays at the same time afterwards, and I believe they got the call right. If you watch it in real speed versus slow motion, it's not that late a hit. I believe the Department of Player Safety uses about 0.6 seconds, and this was right in that time frame. It was about 0.5 about half a second so it wasn't late even though when you watch it in slow motion it looked late and he elevated but he didn't make head contact his primary point of contact was the core it ended up being a good hit and they got it right and the great thing about that is that you watch it a bunch of times you get it right you tell the teams listen we've just watched it 10 times you can't be working me the rest of the night saying I owe you one or we screwed you because we didn't we got it right we all saw the replay we saw the same thing you're looking at So." It kind of brings down the um, the tension a bit, brings down the, the whole tenor of the game. And then you go to the Michael Bunting hit, and it was so close to the referee, but the puck wasn't there. So he was focused on something else. Tampa Bay player goes down, he's hurt. The ref knew there was contact. He just probably didn't see the exact point of contact. So they kill the play, and all four guys come in. I'm sure the linesmen had some really big input in that because they'd be focused sort of in that area. And then you've got the neutral zone referee who's also focused in that area. They're not both watching the same thing, but he caught the sort of tail end of it, I'm sure. And same principle applied. We've got a non-hockey play. It's not a play on the puck. This is away from the play. We've got an injured player. So let's err on the side of player safety, call a major penalty. They end up looking at it. They got it right. They called the match penalty for illegal check to the head and knocked the player out. And uh, we move on. I really don't think anybody can dispute that it was it was a match penalty. You play the rest of the game. This was early in the game. You play the rest of the game, knowing inside that you got the call right. And I think that's good for the game. It's good for the fans and it's good for everyone involved.
1: Yeah, especially for those dangerous plays or the critical ones there. I mean, we look at a few years back when Joe Pavelski took that hit, and that's what prompted the league to put in review of major and match penalties. And Pavelski, unfortunately, was on the receiving end of another hit that went through the same process coming from Matt Dumba.
2: It looked greasy in real time, but after watching the replays on it, they got the call right. They they really did. Sometimes we don't give the referees on the ice enough credit. We say, oh, they, they missed it, but they didn't miss it. They saw it. They didn't react to it because... On the ice level, they felt it was a good hit, but then they talked it over and they're going, well, may- maybe we missed something here. Let's take a look. Let's err on the side of player safety. So that's what they did. They called the major penalty. After looking at it, they realized, no, we got it right the first time on the ice. So they rescinded it and we move on. That rule was brought in exactly as you say, because of Joe Pavelski when he was in San Jose. And it was just a terrible feeling where they you know, called the major penalty and their hands were tied. they bury three goals and win the series. And the GM said, "You know we have the technology, let's get the call right.
1: And along the same lines, Dave, do you think the officials are calling the game differently now? Are they erring on the side of calling those major or match penalties knowing that they can review it? Or is the edict still for them to call what they see on the ice and then not officiate via review?
2: The edict is still call what you see on the ice and go with your gut. You don't want to be the guy that defaults to a major penalty, you know, six times a year and your record is 0-6, right? You, yeah. you you go and look at them and you rescind all six of them because then the boss are going to start saying, like, what's this guy doing? He doesn't see the play or he doesn't trust his gut. He just goes to a five automatically so he can look at it. You don't want that. It slows the game down. It it sows seeds of doubt if you're constantly wrong. But I do think that there's so many plays that are just so gray area. You know you guys would know but a lot of people don't like when you're down on that ice things happen so fast it's just split second and it's not like baseball where they say well the runner's going for third there's about to be a play at third base and you just focus on Mm -hmm. third and here comes the play and that's all you have to do i mean these things come out of nowhere they're like car accidents right they're just you're watching the pucks over here is over there and then boom a guy gets blown up and if you're not 100% sure, or you didn't get 100% good look at it, but you kinda, it doesn't smell right, then I think that's when you use the rule and go, listen, there's something there. I don't know what it is, but there's smoke. So maybe there's fire.
0: We should err on the side of player safety and call the major penalty. I like that phrase too, that you're using, err on the side of, of player safety in such instances as well. I don't know if you've heard it. I don't know if you've heard about it, but Rod Brindamore, a couple of weeks ago now on a podcast with Elliot Friedman, suggested that perhaps all penalties called should be reviewed just to make sure that you got them right. This isn't to review a play and then throw a penalty in afterwards if one was missed. This is, if a penalty is called, let's just look at it and make sure that we got it right in all penalties. Would you be in favor of such a change? No, absolutely not. Too much? Well, where do you draw the line? It sounds great in principle. Mm-hmm.
2: A guy's going around a defenseman. The defense puts his stick out, and the player toe picks. With zero contact, it goes down. The referee calls tripping. Yes, you go to video. It's easy to fix, right? You say, oh, look, stick never touched them. Yeah. But now we're three days into the playoffs. I keep notes on every single game. How many hooks, hold, and interference penalties have we called? A ton, right? Mm-hmm. And does everybody agree with every one of those penalties? Probably fifty percent of them do. And the other fifty percent say they're they're not good penalties. But in all cases, the stick was there, the hand was there, the 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 player's body was there. How do we decide that? Okay, my judgment says that's not a hook, but the referee in ice said, well, the stick was there, and I think it was a hook.
0: Who decides that? Dare I say it's almost like goalie interference? Well, it's a very slippery slope.
2: Yeah, we said with goalie interference, and and absolutely, it's like goalie interference. There's no consensus with the fans, with the teams, when you know one team thinks you made the right call, even after review, and the other team disagrees, or they wouldn't have challenged. So, we've got that on goals. It slows the play down. It, it you know we have a three four minute delay in the game. Do we want that every penalty? Because nobody's going to agree on. I mean, a hook on a guy going to the net is to 50% of the people, a good defensive play. And he didn't hook him. He just, he got his stick in with his body and bothered him. Right. Who decides whether that was the right call or not? I just think you're opening a huge can of worms and slowing the game down. Penalties are penalties. They're two-minute minor penalties. Some are correct. Most are correct. Some are borderline and very few are outright wrong. Mm -hmm. So I don't think, I think we're looking to fix something that doesn't need to be fixed.
1: Yeah. And I, I think folks are always trying to figure out what they can do to fix officiating, what they can do to change things. And it's such a judgment call, but now we have the ability to dissect it and we're sharing video clips online and we're picking everything apart in multiple different speeds that are a real time. And it, it's been good to see the league use replay in certain situations and get the call right. And I think we had one of those situations where they had to use replay for a review and then for a coach's challenge at Leafs lightning when we saw the goal by Corey Perry, right? That had to have a little bit of a review from the league. So first we had to see, did the puck go in? And then we had the, the coaches challenge. I, I don't know how, how detailed you got Dave, how much of a good look you got at that, but, uh, uh, it looked like the original review was inconclusive. There's some, some angles there that, that show that it might've gone in. It might not, there might've been snow on the line. So what were your thoughts on on that situation between the review and then uh, for for me that was a questionable challenge but I guess when you're Sheldon Keith you're going to give it a shot.
2: Sure. What's important to note here is the Toronto situation room reviews every goal or every non-goal. Anytime that puck comes anywhere near the goal line, Toronto is on it. They are focused because sometimes goals get missed, you know, a quick in and out. So anything around the net, even if the play continues, That situation room, they're on it, and they're blowing it up on the big screen, go, guys, take a look at this. You think this puck went in, and then they'll definitively determine if it did or didn't. If it did go in and the play's still going, they'll call the arena and tell them to blow the horn that we've got a good goal. I mean, why have the play continue when you know you're going to have to reset the clock anyways? So uh, having said that, the ref, I believe it was Wes McCauley on that call, was right behind the net. Came in, got a good look, and he emphatically pointed that he saw the puck over the goal line. Now, I know there's times where referees will point goal, standing in the corner, and it turns to be wrong. This time, he waited. I'm not sure he saw it going initially. He waited, waited. He drove to the net. He pounced on it. He was right behind the net, and he made an emphatic signal when he did finally pick up and see the puck. So, to him, there was no doubt that puck was across the goal line. Now Toronto is going to look at that automatically. There's no challenge needed. There's there's no, the referees just went over, and they say goal, and Toronto goes okay. Give us a sec. We're going to look at it to confirm it's a goal. They looked at it from the angles I saw. You're absolutely right. You couldn't tell 100% video evidence-wise it was over the goal line, but in my opinion, it was over the goal line, which is not enough. You need to have conclusive evidence if you are going to overturn a call or award a goal. But in this case, the goal was already awarded by the referee. So all they need is evidence to show that it didn't cross the goal line. And they didn't have evidence to show it wasn't across the goal line. Therefore, the call on the ice stood. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. you're, You're taking effectively you've got to go with the call on the ice and then see if you can overturn it and if you can't then you have to default to what the initial call was and the same would apply in the inverse if correct. West called it no no goal they need to see that the puck did cross the line otherwise we we've, we've got to go back to the call on the ice correct
2: if if in that situation i believe if west had said no goal then they would have had to live with that call as well because the angle from the net wasn't you know wasn't totally definitive so once now we have the goal Then the coach is allowed to challenge. And in this case, he just said, well, okay, you're saying it's across the goal line. I'm saying that he was interfered with, and that's the reason the puck crossed the goal line. So now they make a formal challenge, and that's where they go back, and then now Toronto looks at goal interference. I thought it was a questionable challenge as well because the rule states that on a rebound situation or any loose puck in the crease, incidental contact is permitted if it's a legit battle for the puck. Now, in this case, if that had been covered, if his pad had been on top of it, his glove had been on top of it, and it was poked in, I think they would have had a leg to stand on. In this case, his skate blade was pinning the puck against the post. It wasn't frozen recovered. You could see the puck. You know, you're allowed a puck battle there. You're allowed to go for that puck and jam it, and that's exactly what he did. It was contact made and that's legal contact and it's a good goal. Then they end up being shorthanded for delay a game. I think it worked the way it was designed to work and you're right about uh, Sheldon Keefe challenging, like why not? You got to do what you
0: can to hopefully get things changed and stay in the game, right? Yeah, that's exactly what he's doing. Is that incidental contact the same ruling that applied in Boston and Florida when the puck was lying on top of Alex Lyon's pad, it wasn't covered? and you're allowed to swat at the puck to try to knock it in the net, which the Bruins did? Absolutely. That same type of
2: of thing. Now, it was sitting on his pad. If they, for example, had taken the stick and poked him in the stomach and pushed him across the goal (laughs) line and and, and the puck crossed then, then it would be no goal. That's pushing the goalie into the net with the puck. In this case, the puck is just sitting there ripe for whoever wants it. It's not covered. They're battling for that puck. They knock it loose Yeah, there's contact on the pad, but it really doesn't matter. Puck goes in the net. That's that's a legitimate puck battle. And the right call was made there as well. There was no challenge there, I don't believe, because they were aware of the rule and they knew they would lose.
1: Yeah, which I think it's a big part that we've seen that the coaches have adapted. They've learned more about the rulebook, or at least more about the ones that apply to challenges to figure out how and when to best do it. And we've seen the accuracy a success rate of coaches challenges go way up year over year. so yeah, good to see that they're actually studying there. Well, it's not just
2: that. I think what the coaches have finally caught on to is that we're not starting at zero when we come to these reviews. we, we touched on it earlier. We're not showing you a blank slate and going yes or no. We're showing you a goal that's been ruled on already. There's been a call made. So that's where the bar is. That's where the bar is set you have to now have enough evidence to say that call is wrong and overrule it. So on a 50-50 call, the call on the ice matters. And there has to be enough evidence to overrule that 50-50 gray area of judgment. So a lot of them are saying, geez, if, that was, if there'd been no call made, I think it should go this way and they used to challenge. Now they're starting to realize there's been a call made, there's been a determination, that's a good goal. Do we have enough evidence to go against that call? So you're not seeing as many challenges that are just Hail Marys going, well, we're, we're thinking this way. They've started to adapt and realize
0: what's at stake and what the whole process is. Dave, if I can, just one more quick one to, to wrap up with you. Sure. I'm just wondering what the guidelines are, if there are any, for communicating with players and coaches. It kind of infuriates me when I hear the reporter's soundbite after a game saying, Did you get an explanation from the referee about this? Sometimes they'll get a yes or no answer, and that's the soundbite that they're looking for. But how do officials, how does the league approach this? And understanding that every personality among the officials and coaches is different, is there any guideline that you follow?
2: Not specifically. I mean, the referees are told if it's going to make your job easier to explain something to a coach, then go and do it. If it's going to make your job more difficult, if he's demanding you come over there and he's really hot and you know that no matter what you say, it's not going to change anything, then you probably stay away. But the officiating department, hockey operations department, like their phone and their door is always open to coaches and GMs. They have the right to call and get an explanation from the people in charge and they're willing to provide that explanation. So... It might not always be instantaneous on the ice, but they do get an answer. It's not always made public. It's behind the scenes sometimes, but they always do get an answer.
1: Just to follow up with that, Dave, do you sometimes wish that these answers or even the explanations that come out, whether it's a a critical call or even some of what comes out of the situation room, do do you think there's an opportunity there to share a little bit more detail or a little better explanation outside of those rooms or outside of between the teams and the officials to actually put something out in public to? pull back the curtain a little bit or give a little more clarity?
2: I I think there's room to explore it for sure. I don't really think that having the officials, the actual on-ice officials, give press conferences or or explain things is the right avenue because for every time it goes well, you're going to have as many times it goes really bad and it becomes confrontational. Guys misspeak in the heat of the moment. But I do think... Possibly from a supervisor, if they were empowered to speak after the game, answer questions, or or even league PR maybe, I think that's an avenue that could be explored. I mean, in this day and age, it just seems that it's an insatiable quest for information and people just not always going to agree with the answer, but at least they've received an answer and they can agree or agree to disagree.
1: Maybe we can give it to the standby officials, give them something to do. right?
2: <laughs> well, once again, a lot of times the standby officials are working the next night or they work the night before and invariably the questions might come up, you know, the guy's giving an answer for what happened tonight. And then a reporter asks, okay, but in your game last night, would All you, right. you know? and then, you know, that opens a whole nother can of worms that I think they're trying to avoid.
0: Well, we love the information you're giving as part of the ESPN coverage. Uh, At ESPN Ref NHL is the way you follow Dave on Twitter, and he's great in interacting and providing explanations there as well. Dave, thanks so much for joining us again. It was really, really interesting. It's my pleasure, guys, and keep doing uh, your good work. I enjoy, uh, enjoy following you guys. I hope Dave keeps doing what he's doing for a long, long time because his information is terrific. It was it was great that he shared this extra time with us. And again, follow him on Twitter. It's really worthwhile. He's very conversational, engaging if you have questions. And again, be respectful in your questions. But he's he's good at explaining some of the rulings as they happen as well.
1: Absolutely. The guy's seen decades of NHL action. He's he'd been on the ice for thousands of games. So to have that knowledge, to have all those game situations and even adapting as the game changed and, and Dave had to switch with it. So you're bringing all that knowledge in and, and putting him on the ESPN broadcast and then tapping him to join us today. It's, it's wonderful to uh, to get inside that a little bit and, and learn some of what he's seen in, in the game and especially in the playoffs.
0: Let's hope that other networks follow suit and bring in <laughs> former NHL officials. And in the meantime, we'll just go back to the, uh, you know, yawn, dull, boring Stanley Cup playoffs.
2: We're good, my book. Good stuff, man. Way to work. Yeah, we're good, man.
0: Too long. Let's go sit for a couple.
1: Get in the box. It's the Scouting the Refs podcast. Read more at scoutingtherefs.com. Follow Scouting the Refs on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at scoutingtherefs. Email the show at heyref at scoutingtherefs.com. Subscribe, share, and keep those sticks down. Okay. That's a uh, nice lead on. That's good play.